Amen. Well, grab a seat, grab your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 9. We are going to continue worshiping in God's Word. Thank you, Harvest. Thank you, worship team. Uh, it's all about the name, isn't it? Mm. What a great time of the year. Uh, we are spending this time of the year continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, just diving in and uh, gobbling it up and taking up God's Word and we're going to be going through that. We're in chapter 9. Chapter 9, we've actually taken three Sundays. We've gone from the glimpse of glory at the transfiguration, from the mountaintop down last Sunday into the valley area to where the Lord is still more and showing himself to be more there. And uh, today, we are going to venture into a conversation in a house, uh, Jesus and the disciples. Let's just dive right in. Lord, I pray that your word would be strong this morning because it's your word, that the spirit of God would do a work among us and that you would be glorified in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 30 tells us, chapter 9, it says, they went from there. In other words, they went from the valley from last Sunday. They went from there and they passed through Galilee. Galilee, that's a familiar territory. Uh, they've been in Galilee almost this whole time we've been in the Gospel of Mark in the region of Galilee. It's familiar territory, but what's happening now is I'm going to kind of say it is unfamiliar focus. The focus has been the crowds and the disciples. That focus is now turning from here on out through the rest of the Gospel. The focus is now on the disciples and the cross. And we are walking into Jerusalem to the cross. That's what's happening. Verse 30 and 31. They went on from there. They passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know. A focus is really changing now. Verse 31. Why didn't he want anyone to know? For he was teaching his disciples. Today is a Jesus teaching the disciples day. He's hanging with them. He's pouring into them. And uh, that's what we're going to be seeing here, the rest of the verse. He's teaching his disciples, and he's saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Delivered into the hands of men. I want to talk about this term here for just a minute here, delivered into. It's, it's what in the Greek language is called passive voice in the form of the verb, Nate and Cody, the seminary is worth it. Um, the passive voice means an action is happening to you. You are not doing the action, but the action is happening upon you. It's happening to you by someone else, another force. What's going on here? The, the fact that the Son of Man, the Daniel 7 title, is going to be delivered into the hands of men is being done by an action outside of Jesus himself, actually. Who, who would that be? Well, he's going to be delivered into the hands of men by Judas if you will, on a human standpoint. But I don't have the time this morning to go through it, but uh, the second person of the Trinity is being delivered into the hands of men by God the Father as well. Listen, God the Father is driving Christ to Jerusalem to the cross. Uh, friends, just the whole Trinity is in on this thing. And he is willingly, submissively, and lovingly do it. By the way, a note to husbands. This word here that's talking about Jesus being delivered into the hands of men is the same 
It's the same root verb that is used in Ephesians 5 that talks about husbands. We're to give ourselves up for our wives. Uh, Husbands, you are to be delivered over to your wives. Wives are like, yeah. Okay, but husbands, that's the thing. Why? Because in Ephesians 5, we are to be living out the picture of Christ walking to the cross. That's what it says. So we are to be the kind of men, the kinds of husbands. By the way, as we study this, just be thinking, I'm supposed to be like that. I'm supposed to be like that, men, in my, in my life and in my marriage. So he, he tells them the son of man is going to be delivered into. The son of man is going to be killed. The son of man will rise in three days. By the way, one more grammar thing and I'm done with it. One more grammar thing here is that in this, this is a future tense. In other words, it's going to happen. But the way the grammar is structured, it's already decided. So Jesus is not going figuring something out. Get a load of this. Jesus knows exactly where he's going. He's going knowing. And that means he's going to a torturous death knowing that. That's our Savior. That's our Savior. He's going knowing what's coming ahead. Well, verse 32, let's keep on moving here. Uh, So Jesus tells him about this, what he's already said. This is really the second time over in chapter 8. He said the same thing about he's going to be delivered. He's going to be uh, killed. He's going to be rise again. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. Isn't that interesting? These poor guys, they just don't get it. And uh, let's be real. We struggle to get it too. So here are these guys, they're not getting it. Uh, in other words, Jesus is not fitting their preconceived idea of what the Daniel 7 son of man should look like. That's really what's going on here. When Jesus says, I'm going to be delivered over to and killed, they're like, what are you talking about? The, the Daniel 7 one is the one supposed to be sitting on the throne conquering over all things. He is not fitting into my preconceived idea of what that one is supposed to be. By the way, that's really important for what we're about to read. Jesus is not fitting their paradigm of on the throne, ruling all things. And by the way, that means we're his cabinet. Watch what happens here. They don't understand what's going on. They don't quite get it. I'm not hearing what I like. By the way, do you notice there it says they were afraid to ask him why? Why might they be afraid to ask him? Well, back in verse 19, Jesus said, uh, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? That would kind of influence me a little bit, wouldn't it? It's, it's kind of like, oh, I don't want to annoy the guy anymore. Uh, along with that, in chapter 8, verse 21, he says, Do you not yet understand? And you're like, I'm not understanding. But he said, Do you not understand? I don't want to get in trouble again. So I get that. But also, it says uh, in Matthew 7, Of this account, that the disciples were deeply grieved. Why would they be deeply grieved? They're deeply grieved because they don't like what they hear. And they don't know what to do with what they hear. It's kind of that scenario where it's like, I already don't quite get what I'm hearing. And I'm not liking what I'm hearing. I'm feeling grieved about what I'm hearing. So it's just better to stay uninformed. I just don't want to go there. Let's just be naive. And let's just be a little bit ignorant. That might be the best situation. I'm afraid to disappoint. And I'm afraid to know more. So I won't ask anything. That's what's happening here. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house. And they came to Capernaum. 
and they're in a house. Okay, before I start going through the rest of this text, um, I want for you to look at your Bible and this whole text through the end of uh, verse 50, uh, through the rest of the chapter. And you, and depending on what version of the Bible you have, you'll have anywhere from three to four kind of inserted headline statements through this. In other words, it says like, this is what this section is about. This is what this section is about. Now, those can be really helpful tools. You've heard me say that before. It kind of helps to summarize some things up. But one of the things that happens, that combined with as you read this, it's kind of sounding like Jesus is talking about one thing, and then on another topic, he's talking about a kid, and then he's talking about water, and then he's talking about this, and then he's just like, this is like so random. Uh, those two things combined together when you read this kind of give you the sense and the idea that what we are about to read is this sporadic like collection of different and non-cohesive thoughts. The reality is what we are about to enter into and read is all one unified, cohesive conversation building off of itself one thing into the next into the next. Very important with this because uh, I'll just tell you going into this uh, study this week, I was just like, oh Lord, what am I going to do with this? And then this is one of the biggest things that stands out. This is a whole cohesive unit and, and team. This is really cool what we're about to read here. I'll tell you, for me this week, this was really cool. I'm excited to share it with you, but you have to understand it's one moving, cohesive unit altogether. In fact, I can prove that by this. Look at the start and the end of the conversation. Okay, let's look at the start and the end of the conversation. And I want to do that by reading verses 33 and 34. And it says, and they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, "Uh, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. We'll talk about that in just a second. Okay, what was going on? They're arguing with one another. Go to the last verse of the chapter, verse nine, verse 50. And it says, uh, at the end of that, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Do you, do you see that? How the, those are the bookends of this conversation. He's talking about you're arguing with one another, and then he's bringing this all around to the whole thing. I want you to be at peace with one another, and everything in between here is building out that argument, is building out that discussion. All right, you with me? All right, let's roll, let's go. Here we go. They came to Capernaum when they were in a house. So they're in a house. They're not out in the open. Uh, it's not a massive crowd. It's Jesus and the disciples. They're where? In a, they're in a house. And Jesus asked them in this house, Hey guys, what were you discussing on the way? Now that's an interesting thing for two reasons. Number one, Jesus knows what happened. He's bringing up a point to teach. But think about it. He's saying that, in other words, on their way to this place to Capernaum, a discussion is taking place. How did that happen? Because he doesn't know what the discussion is. So it's like, are they all like back here having this conversation and he's leading the way or is he in the back and they're in the front? He told them, hey, let's go to Capernaum and he gave them the compass or the GPS iPhone or whatever and they're leading the way and they're somehow in this whole walk on the way, this conversation is going on. This is just funky stuff. How did that happen? I want to know. It doesn't tell us. So that's okay. Here we go. Verse 34, uh, he asked them, uh, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent in the house. 
Um, it, it's kind of like this. Hey guys, what were you discussing on the way? Guilt is in the room. Uh, why? Because Mark tells us what was had gone on. For on the way, they, the twelve, had argued with one another. By the way, this whole text is about a believer-to-believer reality. Okay? Understand this. This is a believer-to-believer reality that they are arguing about and Jesus is talking about. So on the way, they're arguing with one another about what? About who's the greatest. <laughs> These disciples are so humble, aren't they? You know, that's what the, the, thought. the apostles are so humble. No, they aren't. These are like kids in the playground. Like, who's the great? No, I'm greater than you. No, I could take you down. No, I could take you down. No, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. Men grow up. So they're arguing in this whole thing. That's the problem that's on the table. And so here's what's going to happen. Jesus has to deal with it. And he's the one who brings it up. He knows this is going on. And by the way, in his heart, can you just imagine what he's thinking? Here I am going to the cross to die for you guys. And you guys are arguing about who's the greatest. Wow. Verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all. Interesting. If anyone would be first. If anyone would be first. By the way, do you notice? He is not condemning their desire to want to be first. Do you see what's going on? I would have thought, he's like, stop that attitude. But he doesn't say that. He's like, okay. Talking about wanting to be first. Let's talk about that. You want to be first? If I can tell you how to be first. That's what's happening here, everybody. And I put that in. It's like, so should we be all arrogant and first? No, no. Look at his definition here. He tells what being first looks like. Here it is. It's two things. Number one, be last of all. Be last of how many? All. Be last of all. Let me summarize it this way. Go to the back of the line. Go to the back of the line. Be last of all. By the way, not to the middle of the line. Not a ways back of the line. No, no, no. Go to the last of all in it. Hey, you want to be first? Go to the end of the line. By the way, the end of the line of who? The end of the line in this context is the end of the line of, well, really everybody, but the ultimately the end of the line that everybody else that is following Christ. Christ is in the front of the line. Everybody is following Christ. And you and I, if you want to be the best, if you want to be the greatest, you and I should be at the very back of the line. Got it? That's what he's saying. Okay, now in that, That's not the only thing that he said. It's already upside down thinking in what he's saying. But he said, be last of all, and there's a word in there called and. And means there's something else, not just back of the line. Back of the line and a servant of all. Servant of all. 
That means back of the line and a servant of everyone in front of me. All of them. I think I might be able to do the back of the line. I think. But serve all and be in the back? First, do you hear how massive that call is? And by the way, that's it. You want to be great in the eyes of the Lord? Here's the answer. Last of all, servant of all. Go to the back of the line and serve all. And in the Lord's eyes, you will be great. By the way, it's not just back of the line and not serving. And it's not serving and not back of the line. It's back of the line and serving all in front of you. Being first looks like the equation. Back of the line plus serving all equals being great in the eyes of the Lord. Back of the line plus serving all equals being great in the eyes of the Lord, and that is weird math. Pastor Doug, if being first looks like back of the line serving all, then what does back of the line serving all actually look like? I'm glad you asked because the text tells us. Isn't that cool? God just doesn't say be something and not help us understand what that looks like. So here he goes, and he gives us three actions from verses 36 to 49, and the three are receiving, giving, and not causing. These really are building out what the serving all looks like. Back of the line, serving all. Like, what does serving all look like? Okay, Three things here. Jesus in, in the text here goes into this conversation and he gives three statements and each has an illustration with it. In other words, receive and here's an example. Give, here's an example. Uh, don't cause, here's what I'm talking about. That's what we're going to be doing. Let's head that direction. So first action, receiving verses 36 to 37. Uh, and he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me, the father. So, so he gives this thing. He says, hey, listen, here's what it looks like. First, you be receiving. Receiving what? You receive ones like this one. Remember, they're in a house. Hey, Bobby, come here. And follow the text along. Because the text tells us that what Jesus did was he put the child in the midst of them. And then it's like he puts them there and then taking his arms. So everybody's like hanging out however they're hanging out. He puts the child in the middle of them, in the midst of them. And then Jesus comes over and he's like, I don't know, something like this. He's like grabbing a hold, hugging them. And then he's talking with them. Bam, is this not an illustration? Hey, here's how you, how you serve all. This is a status issue. Here's the deal that's going on, okay? Because we don't get this in our culture. Uh, kids have like the premier position in our culture. Have you noticed that like at Thanksgiving when everybody's ready to eat? It's like, kids first. It's part of our culture. You go back 70 years and kids went last. 
Some of you around know that. I've talked with others who have some more age them on me. And they say that used to actually be the case back in the day. Kids went last. But I'm not condemning what we do. I'm just saying, so what's happening here is when you think about a child back in the day, a child back in this day was the lowest person on the whole social status scale. Well, that's rude. Children are beautiful. No, I'm telling you, in that day, that was the view of a child. They were the lowest person on the whole status pole. They were ones who were under authority. They had no self-determination reality. And combine it with this. This is going to be hard for us to grab a hold of. They had a very high mortality rate back in the day. And that totally affects how you view and a culture handles little kids. I'm just going to tell you, you go to other places in the world and that is the case. And it carries in this. So what Jesus is doing, he is not saying, hear me on this. He is not saying, see this little child, be like the little child. He is not saying that in this. This is not a have the faith of a child. Okay, What he is doing is saying, you need to receive everybody if you are going to serve everybody. And I'm even talking about it starts with a little toddler kid who's the lowest one on our social status scale. You need to even be willing to serve that one, by the way, because they're in front of you of the line. And he's using this illustration. It looks like receiving a child. Jesus is at the front line. His people are behind him. And you and I are supposed to be in the back of the line, serving all. And serving all begins with serving the lowest status people included, even like back in that day, a little child. Second, back of the line serving all looks like giving a cup of H2O. Giving a cup of water. Verse 38 John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. We'll come back. Uh, But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me for the one who is is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water, here's the example to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Okay, let's break this. Verse 38, uh, John steps into this whole thing. He's like, John, get your head in the game. Uh, but John talks about it, and he's like, teacher, we saw someone doing some, some miracles in your name, and, and they're not part of us, and, and we told them they needed to stop that. By the way, does that not sound like a person to the front of the line? See what I'm saying? Jesus is like, no, no, to the little status, they're like, to the kid? It's like, uh, by the way, Jesus, it's almost like they're protecting themselves here. I think as you read this and you really work this, there's a tone of what John's bringing up. But but, but wait, we're at the front of the line. But, 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 But hold on here. It's almost like he's arguing back. The arguing hasn't stopped. And so Jesus just so graciously in this, he's like, do not stop him. Uh, How do I explain all this? Uh, I just want to explain all this by reading this passage of scripture, okay? 
Just listen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. In other words, what is Jesus saying here? Uh, Here's another way of him saying it. Verse 15, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. I actually think the from goodwill was the situation at the time. Uh, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Let me summarize it that way and say a couple things. See, Harvest, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we do not get an attitude, a front-in-the-line attitude. Like, Harvest Bible Chapel is like the best. We are the bomb. If you want to be a good church, if you want to be an effective church, if you want to be a church that's growing like we're growing, then look at us. Shame on us if that happens. Shame on us. That is not what this is about. Oh, let's not cop the we're the best, greatest attitude. Let's not do that. The fact of the matter is there is ministry envy out there. I'm just telling you there is. It is out there and it's among pastors as well. But here's the deal. If Christ is preached and if the gospel is being proclaimed and another church is growing faster, seeing more people redeemed in Christ, more disciples growing faster, what do we do? We rejoice because God is at work there. Listen, we are not competitors. We are teammates with the church that is proclaiming Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. Praise the Lord for Kingsway. Praise the Lord for for Chapel Rock. Praise the Lord for Bethesda Baptist. Praise the Lord for Plainfield Bible. Praise the Lord. And may God grow them, use them, multiply them for his kingdom. And I personally, I enjoy the opportunities here and there. I get to have to get together with other pastors in the area. I love that. We've recently had, as elders, we had the opportunity, another church invited us over just to be able to sit around together as elders and talk about ways each of us could be growing and what we've been learning. How cool is that with another church? And by the way, not a harvest church. That's awesome. And more of that should be happening in what's going on. We're teammates at the back of the line. Verse 41 illustrates the point. Uh, It's in a one another context. And Jesus says, for truly I say, I think New International Version says, I tell you the truth. That's important because he's like, I'm assuring what I'm about to say. I assure you of something he is saying here. I assure you that helping your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ by having a we're in the back of the line church, serving all together with those gospel churches, giving them a cup of cold water and a cup of cold water being given to you back in that day. It was like a Mountain Dew. I don't know. What, 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 what's your problem? <laughs> Drink. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry there. Um, <laughs> got caught up in the moment. Uh, uh, but it is. It just is. And it's like, may we be that to God's people around the area. May we be that. 
And what an encouragement that is. That's what it looks like, uh, 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 receiving those of little status and giving a cup of cold water. And then third, he says, not causing one of these little ones. Not causing one of these little ones. Verses 42 to 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. By the way, I have to make sure. When he's talking about the child here, it's not again talking about a child. This is talking about other disciples in Christ. The child is the illustration of others in Christ. All right? Uh, Whoever causes one of these disciples in Christ who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him, better for her, if a great millstone were, were hung around uh, his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And here's the illustrations. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Jesus did have a view of hell and uh, it's real. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Ouch. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. How? It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where worm dies or where worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What in the world is going on here? I'm going to have to summarize it up. The central idea that Jesus is saying is this, don't cause something. When you're at the back of the line serving all, serving all means you're engaged with other believers. By the way, when you're serving all with them all, be careful not only to be receiving, not only to be giving, but also be careful not to be causing something as you serve them. Not cause what? Don't be a cause. Don't be a help. Don't be an assistant. Don't lead people towards the opportunity to sin. Beware of that. So what does that look like? I'm glad you ask again. Because in this, it's like getting serious about your own sin. Hey, you want to help other people in serving them? Be serious about your own sin. Be serious about your own sin. By the way, a hand in the day was really important. A foot in the day was really important. In fact, I would say a hand in the day and a foot in the day and an eye in that day was way more important than it is today. Because we have fake feet and fake hands and eye opportunities. In that day, they had none of that. This is called radical amputation. It's getting serious about your sin. In other words, get so serious as you're about your sin that when you're serving all, that it's like, I'm cutting my sin off. I'm going after it. I'm radically amputating. I'm aggressive about it. I see it. I name it. I go after it. I don't rename it. I don't repackage it. I don't coddle it. I don't closet it. I cut it off. How often today, we all know this, we coddle our sin and we could go around this room and everybody knows the one two three things that they struggle with the greatest and yet we redefine it we coddle it and we make it almost semi-acceptable 
But having a back-of-the-line mindset with a serving-all action reality means that you and I are serious about cutting our sin off. By the way, what do I mean by that? Because when you're angry, you can cause other people to get angry with you. You know what that's like, husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends? You know what that's like when someone gets their kids with parents? When someone gets angry, doesn't it just foster you to want an angry back? Look, come on, game on. Right? Cut it off. Bitterness. When we sit around and we talk as we're serving with other people and bitterness comes up, boy, we can just draw them into sin. Arguing can do the same thing. The disciples did that earlier. A me first attitude, a judgmental attitude, an unforgiving attitude and reality. We can bring other people into our sin. Not causing. It's the action of radical amputation of my sin. Take your sin more seriously than other sins. Man, there's so many things we could talk about in this passage, but I want to keep it there on the central point of it, so I'm going to leave it there. So back of the line, serving all looks like receiving all who are in Christ regardless of their status. It looks like giving love to all my brothers and sisters in Christ by loving on them. And it looks like not being a cause or a reason for my brother or sisters to sin that looks like having a radical view of my own sin when I think about it. And lastly, the last two verses, Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. There's like a lot of salt going on here. And be at peace with one another. Remember the whole structure of this whole area here is this, if any, if, uh, you know, the arguing going on and brings it down to, to the peace at the very end here, uh, I'll add in this here, everyone will be salted in it. Salted by fire. What does it mean? Uh, This is one of those moments where I'm going to just tell you I'm not sure if I fully understand what it means. Because it's so interesting. You go and you read commentary after commentary after commentary and everybody's trying to come up with the reason onto why they think this is what it's talking about and they're not all the same. I just know this. The disciples at the time, they understood what it meant. And right now I'm not quite sure. So I'm going to go, though, what I think on the big picture, what it's meaning. One commentator said this, this vivid mixed metaphor is left without explanation. So I don't want to try and explain it if I can't understand it. But he also says it is somehow relating to the cost of taking up the cross to follow Jesus. Let me say it this way. All of these things here that we've just talked about, everyone will be salted in those. Everyone is going to be tried in those. Everyone is going to be purified in those. Everyone is going to be see if they are tastely in those. However that is meant, I think that is the big picture. Here's the reality. This is what a relationship believer to believer looks like. And we're going to be salted in it. We're going to be tested in it. We're going to be pressed in it. And by the way, here's the cool thing about it. If we as God's people would live out this way that we've been talking through, Peace with one another will be a reality. By the way, let me say that, this, that uh, peace doesn't mean total agreement on every single thing. Peace doesn't mean everyone will be your favorite person. Peace also doesn't mean that all will look, talk, and walk exactly the same. 
But there will be peace in the uniqueness of God's people in God's family. When God's people live like this, there is peace among us. And what a word for the 12, and what a word for us today. Let me finish with this. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus sat down, and he called his men, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. Lord, I pray there would be more of that in us. I pray there would certainly be more of that in me. God, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. You have so blessed us. We are humbled face down. And Lord, it's in times and stages and days like these where we can either get off track or we can get arguing we can get distracted. God, I pray that we would be a people that passionately pursues you with depth. We are a weak people, but we are in line behind a strong Savior. Father, I pray we would be a people that goes to the back of the line joyously. Sometimes that's really hard to be that. I mean, my word, our Savior knows that better than any of us. Back of the line, serving all by going to the cross. Oh Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your pouring into us. Thank you for the blessing that we are in line behind you. May we cherish it. May we hold it. May we be in the back of the line, serving all, joyously, passionately. Oh, dear Lord, more of that in me. More in that in these people. More of that in us. In the precious name of Jesus we pray.